We're grateful that we call you Father. We're grateful that you invented humor and you invented life. And yeah, there's some tough stuff and there's some hard stuff that we encounter. But if anyone should enjoy life, it's those who know you and call you Father. We thank you for the fact that we have perspective on life. We thank you that you have told us about life. We thank you that uh, we know where we have come from. Um, it is really staggering to think that for, the, for thousands of years we did not exist. And then you sovereignly worked so that we were conceived and we came into existence. And now here we are. And we're walking this trail of life that you have set before us. And then at a, at a certain time that you have appointed for each of us, um, we're going to take our last breath uh, by your plan and by your sovereign hand. And then you have prepared a place for us. Uh, our time here is, is uh, really short. Our life is but a breath. Our, our life is, is a vapor, and it's gone. So what we do here, Lord, in a sense, is, is, is a dress rehearsal. The choices we make, we, we need to be long-term in our decisions. Uh, we, we get discouraged at times because of where we are right now at this moment. Or we feel that we're hemmed in, or we start to lose hope. But this is so brief, it's so short, uh, when compared to what you have ahead of us in the future. We, we've got to be earthly-minded because we're on the earth, but at the same time, we cannot forget what you have said about the future. So we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word. We pray that you'll encourage us. We pray tonight you'll give us perspective about our lives. We pray that you'll give us wisdom to live well. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to see uh, carefully through what's going on around us. We pray that you would give us discernment. We're so grateful that you've opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel and that you've called us to yourself. And uh, we, we, of all men on the face of the earth, we, we, we are blessed men because we know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a premise for you. And my premise is this. <clears throat> God does not use strong men. That's the premise. Um, I'd hit it from another angle. Uh, God cannot use strong men. Uh, he will not use strong men. He, uh... Now, that presents a problem. And when I say God will not use strong men... That's pretty much, as you read the uh, bios that are in the scripture, uh, you run into a lot of guys who are strong. We looked at the kings last year. Most of those guys are pretty strong guys, pretty strong-willed. Uh, Moses, Daniel, Joshua, uh, David, uh, strong guys, strong-willed guys. So what do you mean God doesn't use strong men? What, what God does is that God takes strong men it, oh, and by the way, see, the opposite of strong is weak. And none of us want to be weak. If there's anything we hate as men, we hate being weak. Uh, 
When we're strong, we're capable. When we're strong, we're successful. When we're strong, we have energy. When we're strong, we have the wherewithal to accomplish what it is that we want to do. Uh, when we're strong, we can be successful. When we're strong, we're in control. So the last thing we ever want is to be weak. Because when we're weak, we're not in control. When we're weak, we can't do what we want to do. When we're weak, we don't have the resources that we need in order to accomplish our goals and our hopes and our dreams and our objectives. So we love to be strong. What, what you see in the scripture is that God takes strong men, and here's what he does. God takes strong men, and he begins to break them down and begins to make them weak. And the reason he makes them weak is so that they will call out to him and that they will get to a place. You see, here's the problem with being strong. When you're strong, you don't need God. When everything is going your way, when everything is cruising, when everything is coming together the way that you hoped it would come together. I was driving somewhere, and I can't remember where it was. I, I, I just remember seeing this astonishing home. And in front of this home, a guy was coming out, and he had a black Maserati, brand new, didn't even have plates on it, and, and he was getting into his black Maserati, and he had this home, and this guy kind of, it was kind of a snapshot of the perfect life. You don't live in that kind of home unless you're doing well in your career. You don't live in that kind of home unless you're doing well financially. Um, you don't drive that kind of car unless things are coming together for you. And, and it was just sort of the snapshot of how it's supposed to be. I don't know about the guy's marriage, I don't know about his relationship with kids, I don't know anything. But the sucker, it just looked like it was all there. John DeLorean died a couple of weeks ago. And if you remember back when DeLorean was at his pinnacle, DeLorean um, was, uh, he, he, he was kind of the self-made guy in the, what, the early 70s? That everybody, he got a lot of press, he was on the cover of Fortune and Forbes. Uh, he ran the Pontiac division for GMC, basically the guy who came up with the GTO, had had a lot of success, and uh, so much success, and, and the guy, you know, the guy was, he was a good-looking guy, kind of a male model-looking kind of guy, you know, and, uh, uh, and I was going to college in Southern California, this guy's like 50-something, and he marries um, some gal's about 22 or 23. Uh, Tom Harmon was a football player, won the Heisman at Michigan, he had a son named Mark played at UCLA. Well, Tom's daughter was just a knockout model. And DeLorean marries this gal about 30 years younger. So he marries this chick. He's got, you know, he's going to start his own company. He's going to have his own car company. And, uh, man, this guy had it made. And then the guy became kind of a joke. Because his company went south, and the movie Back to the Future comes out. And... Uh, you know, they get in the DeLorean to go back into the future. Um, guy had it made. He was cruising. Money, fame, power, the whole thing. On the cover of magazines. And then it all went south. And, you know, supposedly he was on trial for, for buying cocaine and all this kind of stuff, if you remember this. Uh, he died a few weeks ago. I was reading some of his uh, obituaries. And you know what was really interesting? Uh, DeLorean came to faith in Christ. He trusted Christ. But you know what was interesting to me? He didn't trust Christ when he was at the top. Why would he need Christ? Gosh, he had everything. He had his health, he had money, had fame, popularity. 
some cute little chick you couldn't keep up with, you know? I mean, he, he had it made in the shade. It wasn't until he got humiliated and wiped out and lost everything. See, he, he was a strong man. He had to get weak. And at his lowest point, the gospel was shared and he reached out to Christ. And it saved his life. We don't like being weak, but weakness can save our lives. Paul was a strong individual. Paul was forceful. Paul was disciplined. Paul was a leader of men. He gives us his pedigree in Philippians. Um, he, he had all the things you'd want to have on your resume, and, and Paul said he counted it as dung. Quite frankly, he counted it as crap. A lot of Bibles say refuse or, or rubbish. Just crap. Actually, it's, uh, but someone will listen to the tape and get mad at me. That's really what he meant. He said, I count all that stuff as just a bunch of crap. Um, Paul had to be made weak before he could be made strong. So God takes strong men, he breaks them down, makes them weak. So we lose stuff. Things we love, we lose. Things we hold on to, they're taken away. God strips us so he can make us weak. At one point in Paul's life, he was taken up to the third heaven, Second. Um, Corinthians 12. And Paul says, I, Paul actually went to heaven. He says, I saw things that a man was not permitted to speak. Now, you know, God used this guy to build the church. Uh, you know, this white smoke thing, this black smoke thing. Let me tell you something, the Pope is not the vicar. You know, Jesus is head of the church. Uh, the church is built on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus and the foundation of the apostles. And we don't have apostles today. Um, we're built on the word of God and the foundations of Jesus Christ and, and the apostles. So the apostles went through a lot of things. Peter, and Peter wasn't the first pope. Peter was a guy that was called by Christ. Uh, but Peter was not infallible. Paul opposed Peter to his face, if you read Galatians. Because Peter kind of got was sliding off because people were giving him some heat about you know circumcision and all that. What, what I'm saying is, God used these men, like Paul and Peter. He used Paul in a significant way. Uh, Paul was the theologian of the New Testament. And uh, Paul had to suffer a lot of things. And I think because he had to suffer so much, God gave him an actual glimpse of heaven. God took him to heaven. And if you read 2 Corinthians 12, it says, I, I saw things that a man was not permitted to speak. Now, if you were Paul, and then you came back, and you had been to heaven, let me ask you, how would you feel? But any of your friends go to heaven? Any of the apostles? Uh, no. You're the only guy that's, that's had a glimpse of heaven. It was actually there with the Lord Jesus. Well, what would be the tendency? Well, the tendency would be to become proud. See, that's the thing about being strong. Strong men tend to get proud because um, everything's gone their way. Uh, Paul says, in order to keep me from exalting myself... I was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn was. But he asked the Lord to remove it from him three times. And the Lord basically replied um, that he wouldn't remove it. And he told Paul, he said, my power is perfected in strength. Now that's not what he said. He said, my power is perfected in weakness. Now there you go. God takes strong men, he makes us weak. 
And when we're weak, that's when we experience the power of God. And that's when God uses us. So God takes strong men, he makes them weak, and then by his spirit, he he takes weakness, and then he makes us strong again. But our reliance is not on ourselves, our reliance is on God. And the good things that then come into our lives, we know where they came from, and when favor and blessing comes into our life, you don't get proud because you know how you got it. You basically had nothing to do with it, it was a gift of God, you see. See, the problem with being strong is you get proud. And what is pride? You know, there's, there's a good kind of pride and there's a bad kind of pride. Sort of like mushrooms. Um, you guys like mushrooms? I do. I like, I like mushrooms with, with a steak. There's a dinner party I remember reading about in Portland, Oregon about 20, 25 years ago. And this guy was a mushroom connoisseur. He went out and picked his own mushrooms. Well, you know what? He had an off day. And at that dinner party, three people died from that dinner party. And was it 12 or 14 that were in intensive care and were hanging on for dear life? See, there are two kinds of mushrooms. There's a good kind and there's a bad kind. There are two kinds of pride. There's a good kind of pride and there's a bad kind of pride. The good kind of pride is when you work hard and you work to the glory of God and you accomplish something and uh, Maybe you build something or you've done a good job at work and there's a sense of pride in doing a job and doing it right. That's a good kind of pride. Or one of your kids does something and they go out of the way to help someone or you see them denying themselves to help someone. You see maturity. Well, you feel you're proud. You know, it's a good, it's a good kind of, pr- of pride. The bad kind of pride, C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, Mere Christianity, M-R-E, no, M-E-R-E, Mir, Christianity. Little tiny book, a series of radio addresses he gave on the BBC back right after World War II. But in Mere Christianity, he talks about the greatest sin, and the greatest sin is pride. And what is the essence of pride, bad pride? Pride just wants to be a little bit better than everybody else. That's pride. Uh, two years ago, Oklahoma and... LSU played in the Orange Bowl, and uh, LSU beat them. Uh, Bob Stoops, at that time, was the highest paid college coach in America. Because Nick Saban at LSU won the game, he was given a new contract by LSU. And do you know how much he was paid? Anybody remember? He was paid $1 more than Bob Stoops. That's the essence of pride. You just want to be better. You don't have to be a hundred million better, just a dollar better. But see, the key to pride is being better. It's being at the top of the heap. God hates that. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, the book of Judges, say, what does this have to do with Judges? It has everything to do with Judges. Because what happens with judges is what happens with individuals. When God is good to us and God is gracious and God is kind and things are going our way, if we're not careful, uh, all of these good things, if we're not careful, they can turn our heart. And we can, uh, pride is a very, very subtle thing. And it creeps in and we don't even see it. C.H. Spurgeon in London was preaching one day, 150 years ago. And a lady came up to him after the service, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, 
I want you to know that I have never sinned. And Mr. Spurgeon said, well, you must be very proud. And she said, I am. She didn't even get it. Well, number one, she does sin. She did sin, but there was this idea of sinless perfectionism she thought she'd attained. Well, she hadn't attained it. But as a result of having never sinned, she must be very proud. Oh, I am. See, she didn't even get that pride, pride is the greatest sin. When everything's going our way, we tend to get proud. When we're strong and we're operating on all cylinders and everything's good going on. And by the way, I took a shot at prosperity theology. Let me take another shot at it. Because prosperity theology, which these guys teach, is that if you're walking with God, everything's going your way. You got all the money you need. Your business is being blessed. Your marriage is great. Uh, you got great sex with your wife all the time. Your daughter has never had complexion issues. Uh, you know, your son always has a 4-0 and is on a full ride and he's the quarterback. And, you know, that's, that's how your life ought to be. That's just a crock. That's just an absolute crock. You know what? God doesn't do that. Because God doesn't, you know, will he bless us? He'll bless us as a good father wants to bless his son. But he doesn't spoil us, and he doesn't want to spoil us rotten. Warren Mearsby used to say, if God puts something in my hand without first putting, without doing work in my heart, it'll ruin me. So God doesn't ruin us. Um, you give a kid more than a kid can handle, that kid's going to get proud. You follow prosperity theology and that nonsense, you're going to get proud. And when I see those guys on TV preaching, you know what hits me in the face? These suckers are proud and arrogant. I like to hit some of them in the mouth, personally. I just like to chop those suckers. In the name of Jesus, of course. In, in Christian love, absolutely. But they're some of the most arrogant jerks you'll ever come across, in my opinion. And maybe I'm being arrogant in saying that. In the book of Judges, this can happen to nations. It happens to individuals, it can happen to nations. Now, here's what happens in the book of Judges. They get in this downward spiral of they have forsaken the Lord, they forsake the word of God, the commandments of God. Um, God gave them the land. God said, I'll bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But after I've given you all of this, this is Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 28, after I, I blessed you with all these wonderful things, be careful that your heart doesn't turn away. Well, this is what happened. So the book of Judges is about a 300-year chunk of the history of Israel. And it's captured in the last verse of the book of Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes. It became a lawless culture. And what would happen is they would, they would forget the Lord, they would go in this downward spiral, and then God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, and the Spirit of God would come upon them, and they would fight the enemies, and God would supernaturally work. And then they would have rest and prosperity for about 40 years. Sometimes 80, but usually 40 and then they would forget the Lord, and the downward cycle would go down again, and they just kept doing it for 300 years. Very similar to where we are in our nation. Um, if, uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges uh, chapter 6. We're going to look at one of the most well-known of the judges. This is a guy by the name of Gideon. 
And we pick it up in six, and, and there's a lot of stuff here, so I'm going to kind of do a helicopter on this stuff, on Gideon. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Judges 6. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. In other words, the oppression of these Midianites got so bad that these, these Israeli people, instead of enjoying their homes and their crops and all the stuff God wanted to do for them back in Deuteronomy 6, they're actually living in caves um, in the mountains. I mean, they, they are in bad shape here. For it was when Israel had sown, sown what? Sown their crops. That the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites, this other group, and the sons of the east and go against them. They would camp against them and destroy the produce, produce, produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. What they would come in is they'd come in and take their crops at harvest time. So they weren't occupied by these Midianites all the time, but at harvest time, these guys would come rolling in, and they'd take everything. Next verse explains that. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Boy, that's, that's a graphic picture. A feeding frenzy. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. He said to them, This says the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. He's reminding them of their history here. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Now here's the crux of the matter. That's why we said a few weeks ago, the book of Judges is the Frank Sinatra of the Old Testament. They would not do it God's way. They had to do it their way. And God reminds them of their history. Look at I delivered you. I brought you in this land. I said, I'll give you houses you didn't build. I'll give you crops you didn't plant. I mean, I laid it out for you. But you wouldn't do it my way. You had to disobey. So they're in trouble. I mean, they're in a bad place. Um because they have forgotten the word of God, they've forgotten the promises of God, they're worshiping these false gods uh, instead of destroying them. They, they, they had it all on the table. God, God basically said, you follow me with your whole heart and I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to provide for you. I will defeat your enemies. I, I tell you, every time I read this thing, I'm just struck by the fact that these guys were just flat-out idiots. They just, God offered them the, his, his favor beyond imagination, but they were so self-willed they had to do it their way. Now, when we started in Judges, we started at Judges 2. And flip back there for a minute. 
because I want you to see, I want to remind you again of this spiral, this downward cycle that, that happens after Joshua dies in verse 6. From verse 6 to 10, Joshua dies, <clears throat> and it says in 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. Um, verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. Well, in the verse we're looking at tonight is the Amalekites. But he'd use these different people to come in and plunder these guys. Verse 15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to the judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. Verse 19, it came about when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. This is a downward spiral. Now you know what's interesting, guys? We've talked about this in here in the last few weeks. God has blessed our nation. Why does God bless nations? God blesses nations. Uh, you know, the scripture said, how blessed is, is the nation whose God is the Lord. And one of the things that's so unique about our nation is that other than the nation of Israel, there has been no nation in history that has had at their foundation uh, biblical principles as we have had. When you think about this historically, no other nation in the history of the world has had a system that was designed to reflect biblical principles more than our country has. Roger and I and our friend Al Angel, we spent uh, some time yesterday with a guy named David Barton. And uh, David is really a remarkable guy because I think David's been raised up by the Lord to do... Um, a service to the body of Christ and to the nation in, in demonstrating for us the biblical foundation that was at the core of, of the founding of this nation. Um, he, he has a library over there. In, was it Alito we were in? Yeah, in Alito, in the middle of nowhere. He's got, he's got documents. He's, uh, it was staggering. It's like going to the Library of Congress, and uh, just rows and rows of books and documents from the founding fathers, and he's got, you know, he's got George Washington's wig or something. I don't know. He's got everything over there. It's just, it's just remarkable, the stuff that he has. And the, the reason, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm going this way is that I want to show you that what happens... God writes this stuff for a reason. God, 1 Corinthians 10 says of the Old Testament, these things were written for your instruction. God gives us the, this historical stuff to teach us in the present. There are lessons to be learned here that not only affect individuals, but they affect nations. Um, we have something in this country called revisionist history. And most of us have been influenced by revisionist history. Um, and as a result, we don't have a lot of the information. We, we don't have the whole story. And, and you see, the reason I bring this up is that 
a lot of us are very concerned about what we see happening in our nation. We see a downward spiral. Uh, we see corruption, and it just continues to get, we think, you ever think to yourself, well, you know, it can't get any worse than this, and then it does get worse? I mean, it's just amazing. Why? Because every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. I want to give you a shot on this, and then I want to give you some really good news. But I want to read a section out of Barton's little book called The Role of Pastors and Christians in Civil Government. Fascinating little work. He says, consider the Declaration of Independence. No nation has ever been as long under the same founding document as America has under the Declaration. In fact, France had their revolution more than a decade after America did. But France is now in her 15th government. Brazil has had seven constitutions since 1822. Poland has had seven since 1921. Afghanistan has had five since 1923. Russia has had four just since 1918. And the story is similar for other nations. This type of instability has characterized nations in Europe, Africa, South America, and the rest of the world except America. So where did our founders find the ideas that made the Declaration the most successful government document in the history of the world? They themselves answer the question. James Otis, the mentor of Samuel Adams and John Hancock, declared, now catch this, he says, the authority of Mr. Locke has been preferred to all others. Now, what's, this, what's this about? Well, declaration signers such as John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Rush, and many others also sang the praises of John Locke. And John Quincy Adams declared that the Declaration of Independence was founded upon one and the same theory of government expounded in the writings of Locke. Now, who is this guy? Clearly, John Locke had a, political, a powerful political influence on America and the Declaration of Independence. Interestingly, today, critics classify Locke as a deist or a forerunner of deism. But this is completely erroneous. Not only was John Locke considered a theologian by previous generations, but he even wrote a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on Paul's epistles and also compiled a topical Bible, which he called a commonplace book to the Holy Bible that lists the, verse, that lists the verses in the Bible by subject. When anti-religious Enlightenment thinkers attacked Christianity, Locke defended it in his book, The Reasonableness of Christianity is Delivered in the Scriptures. Now, this, this is the guy that the guys who put together the Declaration, which is the longest-lasting document in modern history for governments, this is where they got the principles from this guy, Locke. Um, and he lists a bunch of other books he's written on Christianity. No wonder Locke was considered a theologian by his peers and by subsequent generations. Um, however, the writing of John Locke that most influenced the Founder's philosophy in the Declaration was his two treatises of government. In fact, signer of the Declaration, Richard Henry Lee, declared that the Declaration itself was copied from Locke's treatise on government. Even though that book is less than 400 pages long, Locke refers to the Bible over 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. This is the primary work that influenced the Declaration of Independence. No wonder the Declaration has been such a successful document. It came from the Scriptures. Uh, 
Our Constitution was an original and uniquely American document. It was not a compilation of the best clauses of other constitutions from across the world. They didn't look to see what France was doing. They didn't look to see what international law was saying. That was a jab if you didn't get it. Now catch this. Barton says, it contained simple ideas that had never before been embodied in written constitutions. Politically new and novel practices such as the separation of powers, checks and balances, and full republicanism. Where did the founders get the specific ideas for this most successful law constitutions? You guys still with me? In an attempt to answer this question, political scientists embarked on an ambitious tenure project to, re to analyze some 15,000 writings from the founding era. Those writings were examined with the goal of isolating and identifying the specific political sources quoted during the time surrounding the establishment of American government. If the sources of the quotes could be identified, then the origin of the founders' political ideas could be determined. From the 15,000 writings selected, the researchers isolated some 3,154 quotations and then documented the original sources of those quotations. The research revealed that the single most cited authority in the writings of the founding era was the Bible. 34% of the documented quotes were taken from the Bible. A percentage almost four times higher than the second most quoted source. Can I give you another long paragraph? You say, why are you doing this? Because I, I want you to show, I want you to see that what happened to judges has happened with us. There's a downward spiral. How many of you guys, how many of you guys learned all this in public school? So what are your kids being taught? Thank you for that word of knowledge. Appreciate it. And that's about right. All right, here we go. In fact, signers of the Constitution, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, acknowledged that the principle undergirding the separation of powers was the same principle found in Jeremiah 17.9. A principle, anyone got a Bible? Look up Jeremiah 17.9 if you would. A principle that had been the subject of numerous, numerous sermons during the founding era. Many other Bible verses and principles also found embodiment in the Constitution. Who's got Jeremiah 17.9? What does it say, T? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand okay. it? It says the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? So a, a, a premise of the founders was that man's heart is desperately sick and evil. So as a result, do you put power in the hands of one man or a small group of men? No, because as Lord Acton said, absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. So a biblical principle was very significant. Then he goes on. I'll give you one more and I'm going to quit. Many other Bible verses and principles also found embodiment in the Constitution. For example, compare Article 1, Section 8 provision on uniform immigration laws with Leviticus 19.34. Our immigration laws used to be based on the principles in the Old Testament that God told Israel in regard to a sojourner. Compare the Article 2, Section 1 provision that a president must be a natural born citizen and compare that with Deuteronomy 
Schwarzenegger doesn't like that verse. The Article 3, Section 3 provision regarding witnesses and capital punishment compared with Deuteronomy 17.6. And Article 3, Section 3 provision against attainder with Ezekiel 18.20. And notice that Isaiah 33.22 divines the three branches of government. And Ezra 7.24 establishes the type of tax exemptions that the founders gave to our churches that still exist today. That, by the way, are all under attack today. I mean, this thing goes on and on and on. So why have we been blessed as a nation? Why have people from all over the world wanted to come here? Because these guys put together a new deal based on the scriptures. It wasn't perfect. But that's why it's held firm and it's why it's held fast. Now, we're in a downward spiral. And what's becoming real interesting in our times is that the lines are being drawn. Um, I, I found... Roger was sharing this with me uh, that uh, he found on Barton's website as he was analyzing this last election. And, you know, everyone's looking at it different, you know, trying to read trends and demographics and all that. And, uh, Roger, you help me here. That significant statistic that Barton found was that, was it 62% of the people that voted for Bush attended church at least once a week. Was it 63%? Say that one more time. 72% All right. 72% of those who voted for Bush went to church at least one time a week. 63% of those who voted for Kerry never go to church. That's pretty interesting. Now, back in the days of our founding, see, the guys and judges would look back to the time of Joshua as a time where God was at work. We look back a couple hundred years. What I'm saying is, you know, we read historically about the rise and what? Fall. Nations collapse. You've heard me say this as we go through judges. So there's a downward spiral that happens. So we should not be surprised at, what's, at what is happening to us. Now, the question is, when there's a downward spiral, what do we do when we get real weak? What do we do? Well, we need to call out to the Lord. And there are a lot of believers in this country that are praying and calling out and saying, God, you have to deliver us. Um, can you believe where we are today? Can, could you have believed 10 years ago that we would be dealing with the issues today that we're dealing with? Could you have believed five years ago that the whole issue of homosexual marriage would, be, marriage would be seriously entertained. No. That came out of nowhere. But the downward cycle continues. Now this is where they were when this guy Gideon comes into the picture. Okay? So that's sort of our setup. So let's see. Most of us know the story of Gideon. So with that in mind, let's see what happens here. Verse 11. Deuteronomy, not Deuteronomy, Judges. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. Now that in itself tells you a lot. Uh, you don't put wheat in a winepress. Why was he putting wheat in a winepress? Because the Amalekites and the Midianites were going to come, and this sucker's trying to save some food. 
He, he, you put grapes in a wine press, he's getting wheat. You don't, you don't put wheat in a wine press, you thresh wheat. But they're going to destroy the crop. So he's taking wheat and putting it in a wine press. And, 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 and one of the things you, you could actually do was press it to a degree. You'd even get juice out of this thing. He's looking for anything he can get in order to have sustenance and to survive. I mean, this is a picture of absolute weakness in the nation. Uh, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. I'm sure Gideon, when he heard that, he must have looked around. Because Gideon was not a valiant warrior. Uh, as you'll see in just a minute. Uh, he was anything but a valiant warrior. But see, this is what, I mean, this is what he was going to become. See, guys, when we're weak and things fall apart, we lose our confidence and we lose our hope and we lose... Uh, things couldn't have gotten any worse where this guy was. And the Lord says, calls him old valiant warrior. See, God didn't see him as he was. God saw him as he was going to be. And the reason God makes us weak is that God wants to build us into something that we're not right now. That's why God strips things from us. That's why God takes external things from us. Because God wants to make us strong. We love to be strong. We love to be strong physically. We love to bench press. Uh, we love to do, that's why guys take steroids, to hit home runs, and because they, they want to be strong. You see. When I, I used to do NFL chapels. These guys would come walking in, and they're, you know, they're, they're six, eight, and they were 340, and they got 2% body fat. And, you know, they're just, they're just unbelievable studs. But I'd, I'd, at a certain point, I'd say, hey, let me ask you something. How much can you bench press with your character? See, that's the issue. You're all pumped up. I mean, what are you, 28 years old? What are you going to look like when you're 52? I mean, you know, most NFL guys, are, are not, a lot of NFL guys are dead by 52. Certainly by 58. See, his character, how's the inner man going? God doesn't see us how we are. He's aware of how we are. But see, the reason he's allowed those circumstances to come into our lives is he wants to make us valiant warriors. He wants to make us strong men in character and in heart. Gideon said, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why are we just getting the tar beat out of us? And where are all his miracles which our father told us about? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Now realize what he's just told this guy. The armies of Midian and the Amalekites are, are innumerable. Innumerable. They were probably once again up in, in the one or two million mark. Uh, I think it's Josephus, the Jewish historian, that, that says... This battle that's about to happen is, is one of the two or three great battles in all of history because the odds were so absolutely overwhelming. I mean, just, you know, it just kind of, he lays it out there. Go in this, your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. What are you talking about? I mean, we're at the weakest of the weak. And look at verse 15. He says to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. 
At this particular point, apparently Manasseh was one of the weakest of the tribes. And not only is Manasseh one of the weakest of the tribe, but his family was the least in the tribe of Manasseh. And then he says, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. So you got probably the weakest tribe. He says, the weakest tribe, my family is the least of the weakest tribe, and I'm the youngest of the brothers in my family in the weakest tribe. You know how usually you can look around and see someone who's in worse shape than you are? He couldn't do that. (laughs) This guy was the weakest of the weak in all of Israel. I love that. Because that gives us hope, doesn't it? There was nobody who was lower. There was no one who had a lower rank. There was, there was no, this guy was a bottom feeder, is what this guy was. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Well, he can't quite believe this, so he asked the Lord for a sign, and he does this sacrifice thing. And in verse 21, the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then, I mean, I mean, you know, he's just amazed by this. The angel of the Lord has done all this. I mean, this is, there's some power going on here. And then what happens is, you get down to verse 25, and God tells him to pull down the bales. His father has an idol, and he said, I want you to pull it down. And when he pulls it down, uh, you read in verse 28, the whole city's against this guy. So you see, he had to take a stand on a biblical principle. He had to tear down what God was against. Uh, When he knew the Lord was with us, see, when the Lord is with us, there's going to be a time where you've got to take a stand. There's got to be a time where you've got to do what's unpopular. We talked a few weeks ago, I think, about feminized men. Feminized men need the approval of the group. Feminized men will not take an unpopular stand because it's unpopular. Uh, This guy was tested God says, why don't you go tear down the bales? He did it. He took a stand and his own, see, and, and, and here are the people of Israel with the false gods. So God tests his heart. Hey, before you go fight the million or two, you gotta, you gotta stand in your own community. So he does that. And then what happens is that he sends out basically the word to all these different people Not all the tribes, but he sends messengers in verse 35 throughout Manasseh. And they were also called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And then he does this fleece thing. So he he takes a fleece of wool, he puts it on the floor, the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it's dry on the ground, I'll know that you will deliver me. And it was so, verse 38. Then he said to the Lord in 39, Do not let your your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more. Now let it be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on the ground. Verse 40, and so it was. So here's what happens. Verse 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now go back to verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people were with him, rose early and camped beside the spring at Herod. Uh, these people came and joined him. And, and you, this guy was weak. This guy wasn't sure. God says, I want you to go do something possible. I want you to go fight Midian. Well, he didn't have anybody. But what happens is 32,000 guys show up. 
And he finally, God finally cut him some slack. I mean, things had gone from, you've ever had a stretch in your life where everything you touch just doesn't work? And it's like there's no favor in your life and nothing. Well, God's with him, and, and he puts out the word, and from these different drives, 32,000 guys, suddenly he's got an army of 32,000 guys. Now, there's a million guys or so that he's going up against, but he's got 32,000. You know, that, that, he had to be encouraged by that. That was a good thing. All right, okay, all right, something's happening now. We're getting a little action going here. But, but then he gets to 32,000, and God says, the people who are with you are too many. Say what? <laughs> this is where Isaiah 55, 8 comes in. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. This, hey, God, wait a minute. This is a good thing. I got an army. And then what does God say? You got too many guys. Because if I give you a victory with 32,000, guess who's going to get the glory? See, he finally gets a break, and then God says, no, nah, I'm taking that break away. This is where God doesn't make sense. But Psalm 119, verse 68 says, the Lord is good and does good. And see, this will happen, guys. Something will happen. You go, all right, now, all right, now we're cooking, and then whew, God will take it away. So what do you do? You can get hacked off, and you can get mad, you can angry, or you can trust. What's that old hymn say? Trust in what? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So verse 3. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Hey, hey are you 32,000 guys? How many of you guys are afraid? Okay, you guys hit the road. Hey, everybody, everybody had fear. I mean, if you don't have fear going up a million guys, you're nuts. Bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is going ahead and doing right in spite of your fear. You see? It's not that these guys didn't have some concern. But, but see... The, the 22,000 guys, fear was the overriding force in their life. Over 200 times in the scripture, the Bible says, fear not. Fear not. Fear is a huge enemy. Fear can keep you from doing what's right. Now see, right out of the blocks, what's this guy's name? Gideon. He'd been tested on fear because the first thing God says is go turn down the barrels. Well, what if I do that? He said, go turn down your dad's bales. Well, I'm going to have some conflict in the family. And you know, it's really going to be hard at Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> he didn't think about that. All he did, you know what? You don't worry about it. You do what's right. If, if, if there's a principle, you do what's right. You don't want to be obnoxious, but you've got to love God first. So God tested him on his fear. He passed the test. 22,000 didn't. See you guys later. Now, now, once again, God's just taken away something that was good. He's just lost a third of his, uh, two-thirds of his guys. 10,000 remain. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. What is this? 
Have you not read Lao Tzu and his strategies for battle? I mean, you know, go down to Barnes and Noble and, and read Leadership Principles of Attila the Hun. It's amazing we, we, we go and read all this stuff and it has no biblical basis. God says, listen, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And basically, here's what God does. You know what's really wild when you go to Israel? Um, I, I remember we, we drove up, um, we took a break. We'd been up at Jezreel. By the way, that's where this whole thing was being fought. And we pulled into this real nice park and it had a really nice swimming pool. And there's a concession stand over there and it's pretty warm because uh, the first time I was there was in July. And um, I mean, it's just really a nice looking park, you know, like you'd see in Plano or Frisco or somewhere. And, and over, on the si over there on the other side is, uh, as you come in off the road and there's the parking area, you know, you got this kind of big rocky face kind of thing. And across the street are these orange groves. And as you walk over to that rocky face, that cliff, uh, it's the spring at Herod where these guys drank. It's still there. I get, I get a picture of it. With, with the, I'm there with Josh. And, and that same spring. And as you look from the spring, you look out, and you can see where they were going to fight this battle. It's pretty wild. And the water's still flowing. The spring's still flowing. Basically what God said is, here's what you do. The guys, the guys that lap out of that spring with their tongue like a dog. In other words, the guys that get down on their gut and lap, that's one group. The guys that kneel and put their hand down and bring it up, that's another group. The guys that get down on their gut and lap, get rid of them. The guys that kneel and just cup the water and bring it, those are your guys. Guess how many guys knelt and did this? 300. 9,700. I'm sure, I'm sure Gideon's sitting there with his little cocky. You know. <laughs> this isn't looking good. This is not looking good at all calls his CPA, calls his attorney. This is not looking good. He's got 300 guys left. Now, God can work. We get discouraged sometimes because we look at, we feel like we're overwhelmed and our message is not getting out. And you ever feel like it's one-sided? You ever feel like, sure you do. Well, God knows that. God's in control of all of that. You know, uh, Elijah felt like he was the only guy left in Israel. And God said to him, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You know what? Sometimes we can have too many. God wanted 300. And basically what happened was with 300 guys, they devised this attack that the Lord gave them uh, as these guys were sleeping. They devised an attack with, with their trumpets and with their lanterns and they just freaked these guys out and cleaned them out and beat them. Uh, if, if you look at Judges 7, verse 12, once again you see the overwhelming odds. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying to, in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camels without number and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And, and God took them and Gideon took them with 300 
300 who were willing to do it God's way. So, what does that have to say to us? We would all agree there's a downward spiral. We would all agree that things are difficult in this nation. We would all agree that uh, uh, we just keep pushing the envelope morally. It just can't get any worse, but you know that it can get worse. So what does this mean for us? You know what this means? And at the same time, you see, for some of you guys, you're in a real tough spot, and you've had a lot of loss, and maybe you're out of work, or maybe you've lost your marriage, or maybe you've lost your reputation, or maybe you've been unfairly accused. or See, whatever it is, you see, I'm probably in the most weakened condition I've ever been in my life. We hate being weak. I mean, we hate it and we despise it. I despise it. But you know, guys, that can be the best place you've ever been in your life. Because when we're weak, God has to come through. And if we'll seek him, and if we'll open our hearts, and if we'll do it his way, what's it? Hey, do you know that circumstantially, he has put you in this position? He's put you in this weakened condition? That's what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said, shall we accept prosperity from the Lord and not adversity? The prosperity guys would say, of course not. Don't accept adversity. It's speak Rima, speak. Shut up. <laughs> they don't have room for adversity. The Bible has room for adversity because God builds us through adversity. God brought the circumstances on Job. God made Job weak. You say the, the devil did. He couldn't do it without God allowing him to do it. They were, Job was being tested. Joseph was being tested in the dungeon. You're going to be tested. You're going to be made weak. I'm going to be made weak. And then what does God do with weak men? His power is perfected in weakness. And then what God will do is he begins to rebuild you to do the work that he has called you to do. And he sets you at the post that he has appointed you and assigned you to. That's what God does. And I'm going to tell you something. God doesn't need a lot of guys. He just needs guys, a small amount of guys, that are willing to stand and follow him with their whole hearts. Come what may. That's the message of the Bible. So, so you, know what our, you know what our issue always is? Our issue is, am I going to obey? Our issue is, I'm going to stand on the Lord. Is the Lord going to come through? And God... God puts us in situations where he's saying, hey, you're going to trust me or you're not? And I'm going to tell you something. If you trust him, it's going to cost you something. Say, so, wait a minute, if I do this, if I do this, see, and see, when you've had a string of things like's happened to Gideon, when you've had a string where things have not gone your way, and then God says, I want you to trust me, and you put the whole thing in line, and you're thinking, yeah, but what if, what if, it does, what if he doesn't come through? See, he didn't come through on these other deals. I thought he was, but he didn't come through. What if he doesn't come through now? Well, you know why he didn't come through? Because he wanted to get you to this point of absolute surrender where you've got to surrender, and you're going to have to trust to see if he is going to come through, and if he doesn't, you lose everything. Isn't this great stuff? But show me a man in the Bible that has been significantly used by God who has not gone through this. That's why we're there. That's why we go through it. And then, 
And then when God comes through and God blesses and God begins to use, you don't love the stuff and you don't love the blessing. You love him because you know where it came from. God's looking for guys they are going to follow him with their whole heart. When your marriage gets tough, when your wife gets weird because she's going through menopause, I'm dead serious. That's Christianity. He's looking for some men that'll trust him. And I'll tell you what, he'll come through. He'll come through. So let's bow. Father, we get concerned about the moral deterioration in our nation. May we be as concerned with the moral deterioration in our own lives. And it doesn't have to be adultery. It doesn't have to be pornography. It can be a lack of faith. It can be a refusal to believe you and your word. Lord, you test us. You're for us. You're on our team. You want to use us. You really do want us to be strong, but you're going to do it in your way. So, Lord, would you encourage us? The guys are out of work. Encourage them. The guys are under great pressure. Encourage them. The guys that are fighting physical setbacks and disabilities. Encourage them. I would venture, Lord, every guy in this room has an area in his life that he's concerned about, and if you don't come through, he's finished. So our trust and our hope is entirely in you. It's from faith to faith, Lord. Help us to trust you. And help us to stand and not waver and not give in. Help us not to let fear control us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.